John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha, Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from my God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Then this is verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted, his eyes, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. The headline this morning on knoxnews.com, Vols March 
ends in sadness. It's really sad. I don't know how many of you followed uh, Tennessee basketball throughout the year, but I and my family for one, particularly my son, followed it avidly, enthusiastically, gloriously, and there's a sadness in our home that began last night and did not leave this morning. The first line of Joe Rexroad's article says, The NCAA tournament is as unforgiving as it is fascinating, as impossible to predict as it is guaranteed to entertain. That's not dissimilar to life, is it? Unforgiving as it is fascinating, impossible to predict as it is guaranteed to entertain. What do we do with moments like this? What do we do when we feel sad? I understand for many, sports is simply something that is trivial. It's actually not true for all. But what do we do with sadness? I would venture to say this morning, we don't know. We really don't know what to do with sadness objectively or subjectively. We don't live in a culture, particularly in the Western world, even more specifically in America, and even more specifically in middle to upper class America, we have a very hard time with sadness and disappointment. And as a result of that, we struggle. We struggle to deal with our own sadness, and we struggle to deal with others' sadness. And this is evidenced by what we say often in the midst of sadness. Kate Bowser is a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's done a number of different studies, but one of her capstone studies that she's written on extensively is the prosperity gospel. This whole idea of health and wealth that is proliferated by many uh, televangelists and megachurch pastors and churches throughout the Western world. And she delved into this, not so much or really in any way because she embraces it, but because she's fascinated by it. In the midst of her fascination with this, over two years ago, 35 years old Duke Divinity professor Kate Bowser contracted stage four colon cancer. She wrote a pretty viral op-ed about it in the New York Times in 2016, and then she wrote just a couple months ago, uh, as she still survives and lives with stage four colon cancer, she wrote another piece for the New York Times entitled, What to Say When You Meet the Angel of Death at a Party. After years of living with stage four cancer, I have some suggestions, she says. We all harbor the knowledge, however covertly, that we're going to die. But when it comes to small talk, I am the angel of death, she says. I have seen people try to swallow their own tongue after uttering the simple words, how are you? I watch loved ones dissolve into stammering good wishes and then devastating looks of pity. What does the suffering person really want? How can you navigate the waters left churning in the wake of tragedy? 
I find that the people least likely to know the answer to these questions can be lumped into three categories. Minimizers, teachers, solvers. I am a professor at a Christian seminary, so a lot of Christians tend to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they want to go there, like now. Atheists can be equally bossy by demanding that I immediately give up any search for meaning. One told me that my faith was holding me hostage to an inscrutable God, that I should let go of this theological guesswork and realize that we are all living in a neutral universe. But the message is the same. Stop complaining and accept the world as it is. You see, people don't know what to do with suffering. And sadness. We don't know what to do with our own. And we don't know what to do with others. She continues to write. And specifically speaking about these teachers and solvers. She says. I was immediately worn out. By the tyranny of prescriptive joy. Aren't you? I think we all are to some degree, whether we know it or not, worn out by the tyranny of prescriptive joy. Why? Because it's not real. It's plastic. It's a shell. We are broken and we live in a broken world. We are not the way we're supposed to be. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And what are we going to do about it? Don't worry. Easter is coming, but we're two weeks away from it. And post-Easter, we're going to study the book of Philippians. And in fact, that sermon series already has a title, Resurrection Joy. But today is not Easter. And today, there has been no resurrection. And so today, we are called to follow Jesus wherever He leads. And today, in John 11, Jesus leads us into sadness. What I want us to see in an overarching way from John 11 this morning is that Jesus was acquainted with grief. That's what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 53. That's the ESV's translation, that he was acquainted with grief. And that's what I want us to see. The NIV, translating the same verses, says he was familiar with pain. And they both say, He was a man of sorrows. Well, if Christian means little Christ, and if Christian means following Christ, it means we follow wherever he leads, and this morning he leads to sadness. He was acquainted with grief. He was familiar with pain. He was a man of sorrows. Therefore, we must be too. We really don't know what to do with sadness. It's so helpless. It's so powerless. It's empty. That's why there seems to be a constant refrain explicitly and implicitly in our our parenting that essentially communicates this repetitively to our children. Don't be sad. What's wrong? Cheer up. 
don't be sad. It's not what our Heavenly Father tells us. You see, we don't do sad. We avoid grief. Christians especially. Now, you might be able to prove me wrong on this, and I'd be happy if you did. But I wonder if you could think of, if you are familiar with such things, a contemporary Christian hymn or song that embraces the reality of sadness. Now, you can find historic hymns. A lot of the people that wrote those were things like depressed and deranged and bipolar. And they wrote amazing hymns. I'm not categorically throwing contemporary Christian songs under the bus. I am wondering, why does no one write about sadness? We struggle with it. I wonder how many of you have seen the movie Inside Out. You know, the Disney Pixar animated film that was actually backed by substantive research from psychiatrists and psychologists dealing with feelings and emotions. Do you know what the heroic emotion is in the movie Inside Out? Sadness. Sadness rightfully, psychologically, truthfully for humanity captured in this Disney Pixar film. Sadness is the hero. You see, because there's something counterintuitive and beautiful about sadness. And in fact, to the extent and to the degree we can embrace sadness, brokenness, and pain, it expands our heart's elasticity to experience joy. Will you embrace sadness and sorrow as Jesus did? He was acquainted with grief, familiar with pain, a man of sorrows. More specifically, I want us to see Christ this morning in John chapter 11, that he was aware of sadness, that he entered into or engaged sadness, and then finally he delivers out of sadness. Verses 1 through 4 set the context for us. I already told you in the scripture introduction that this is a family that Christ was well acquainted with. He had love for them. He had a friendship with them. This would be a good time during this story, by the way, to remember that Jesus is human, was, and is fully man and fully God. It's a mystery hard for us to imagine and embrace. And in fact, in this story, in some pretty unique ways, and we'll get to this in a minute, in the way he deals with Mary and Martha here, we see his humanity on full display and we see his deity on full display. But here in the beginning, we need to simply know that Christ was a man who was aware. He was aware of the sadness that had come upon this family through the death of their brother and his friend, Lazarus. He received this word and he responded. It's as if these beginning verses want to whisper to us, he knows. He cares. He is aware. Sue Johnson is a marital therapist out of California. 
that says probably the deepest question all human beings and more specifically spouses ask each other is this, will you be there for me? That's the yearning that's deep within all of our hearts, she says. And that's specifically what she focuses on in marital therapy with regard to a healthy marriage. A healthy marriage, she says, is where each other knows the answer to that question, and the answer to that question is yes. Will you be there for me? Well, we ask that in a spiritual way, too, in this story affirms the same thing. If we are asking God, will you be there for us? This story answers yes, because he's aware. Now, these first two points have direct application for us, and so I want to make the first one. Not only was Christ aware of sadness, as a result of that, we also must be aware of sadness, our own and others around us. My simple question is, are you? I've heard it said before, you can't really know another person unless you know where they hurt. Do you know where your friends hurt? Do you know where your kids hurt? Do you know where your spouse hurts? It's important to know these things in order to love them. Do we know where our culture hurts? Are we sad with it? Or do we enjoy the position of being self-righteous and judgmental? Why, when we read the news, is our default reaction to be self-righteous and judgmental instead of sad? The Avett brothers, once again, seem to capture a deep reality of life in a poetic and beautiful way. Thinking of the title track off their album entitled True Sadness, their lyrics go like this. But I still wake up shaken by dreams, and I hate to say, I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel off a few layers And you will find true sadness. That's true in our world. That's true in our lives. That's true in others' lives as well. Take the time and you'll see that no one is fine. Peel off the layers. What will we find? True sadness. Jesus is aware of this. Through his awareness... He enters and engages this sadness. And this is where the narrative picks up around verse 17. And this is where we see Jesus embodying what the writer or the preacher of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15, about Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In this narrative, in this story, Christ is aware and Christ engages sorrow and sadness because he is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Rather, he is a high priest who is able 
to sympathize with our weaknesses. One small detail that you notice in the text, he does so on his timing. It's kind of a hard reality here. There's mystery, and scholars debate why Jesus waited. He received the news through the awareness, and then he sat, and then he still had to make the journey. Four days. It took him four days. I'm sure that four days felt like an eternity. That four days also solidified the reality that Lazarus was really dead. Why does God wait four days? We don't know. We do know that he enters and he engages sadness. We also know in principle that he doesn't do so on our timing. But he does show up. Woody Allen is noted to have said, 90% of life is just showing up. Emily and I were talking about this recently with regard to parenting and reminding ourselves, you know what a good parenting principle is? Just showing up. That's pretty good in all relationships, actually. I know we all want to be perfect and we want to have the right words to say and we want to be this force of influence. We do really well if we consistently just showed up. Showed up physically, showed up emotionally, showed up spiritually, engaged and entered into people's life like we see Christ doing here. Jesus has an interesting interaction with Mary and Martha here. We see other examples in Scripture. I even think about Luke 10. And it's almost as if Mary and Martha swap roles in John 11 from where they were in Luke 10. Remember in Luke 10, Mary is the one that's doing what is better sitting at Jesus' feet, being still, abiding with him, and Martha is over there doing like her pottery barn, garden and gun thing in the house, right? Here, Martha is the one that runs out to meet Christ. And in this great statement of, you know, complexity of faith, is frustrated with Jesus, while at the same time, she expresses faith. Like, where have you been? If you had have been here, my brother would not have died. Right? And so she's professing something that's really true here. She understands his deity. And it's interesting that as she professes his deity, Jesus meets her in his deity. And he basically says, what are you talking about? Don't you believe? I am the resurrection. In the life. It's almost as if there's a gentle or not so gentle rebuke and some education here for Martha in the midst of her questions and her sadness. He meets her proclaiming and manifesting his deity, as Tim Keller says, in a ministry of truth. That's how he meets Martha. Well, how does he meet? Mary. Well, Mary, you remember, was inside, and then she, the text tells us, was raised up and went out to meet him. Interestingly enough, the Greek word there for Mary when she was raised up is the same word that we translate resurrection. 
for Jesus himself was raised up. So Mary is resurrected and goes out to engage with Jesus, and she brings people with her. Frederick Bruner, one commentator, says, Mary's coming to meet Jesus draws the visiting Judeans with her. A disciple's going to church draws friends there with them. Some of these friendly followers, indeed, quote, many of them, as we learn in the sequel, will become believers. Reference verse 45. But Mary runs out to engage with Jesus. And while Jesus fully manifests His deity with Martha, we see Mary here, we see Jesus here fully manifesting His humanity with Mary. He gives Martha a ministry of truth, and He gives Mary a ministry of tears. Think about how unique this is. For the central person in a faith, in Scripture, in Christ, to hold in tension these two great things, humanity and deity. Ministry of truth and ministry of tears. Let's talk a little bit more about Christ's tears and a little more generally about Christ's emotions in general that we see throughout the Gospels and we see more specifically here in John chapter 11. B.B. Warfield in a famous essay entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that He was subject to all sinless human emotions. This is B.B. Warfield, who was not a psychologist, by the way. He's a historic, reformed theologian. Actually wrote an essay entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And then furthermore, he said, it belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that He was subject to all sinless human emotions. That's why we see in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. That as a kid, for me, was kind of funny. That was one verse I memorized, right? But as I grow older, and I start to realize the profundity of this simple verse, that Jesus wept. One scholar translate this, Jesus, translates this as Jesus bawled. Think about that. Just try to let it sink in for a moment. Tim Keller says, Jesus broke down sobbing beneath the weight of Mary's grief and in the shadow of the grave. Sobbing, bawling, weeping. Moving towards verse 38, which the text tells us that he was deeply moved. Jesus once more was deeply moved when he came to the tomb. And there's an interesting meaning here to this word in the original Greek. It means to bellow with anger. And sadness. Think about that for a minute. Christ over the tomb of one of his best friends, someone the text explicitly tells us that he loves, fully man, fully God, weeps, and then goes deeper into that weeping. The text tells us 
that he was deeply moved. And the Greek understanding of that original word in the text is he was raging with anger and deep sadness. Of course, there's some mystery to know exactly what that anger and sadness were rooted in. But most commentators, and it seems reasonable to conclude that he was angry and sad over his friend. And this is odd, keeping in mind that Jesus knows he's about to raise him from the dead. But he's still sad about it. He was also presumably angry and sad over the reality of death, period. Because what it did to Christ, it reeked of the enemy. Jesus knew something that we seemingly struggle with, which is, we were created to live forever. And death entered the world when sin entered the world. And so while I understand, culturally speaking, why and how we celebrate life that was lived at funerals, it seems that Christians are often confused and unfortunately in the midst of trying to celebrate someone's life, we often celebrate death. When we do that, we're not on the same side as Christ. Jesus died because of death. Death is not okay. Death provokes righteous anger and sadness. And Christ was deeply moved. You can't help but to think that Christ must have been thinking about his own tomb. And that wasn't a pleasant thought. So Christ is aware of sadness and Christ enters in to sadness. Therefore, before we move to our last point of Christ delivering out of sadness, we have to ask ourselves a question of application again. I'll use Romans 12 verse 15. Do we weep with those who weep? Not only are we aware, that's a good question to ask, of people's sadness and grief, but do we enter into it with them? For them. It seems so often that we don't do it in our own life and we don't know how to do it in other people's lives. We seem to follow this paradigm where there is a loss, then there are lessons learned, we adapt, and we move on. Cloud and Townsend, two psychologists who are also Christians, have written, have written extensively on a number of human emotions, including grief, and they talk about there being a missing piece in this dynamic. Loss, lessons learned, adaptation, moving on. What's the missing piece? Grief. Grief over the loss. When I was in high school, my family relationally imploded that led to my parents' divorce, and I remember sitting with a mentor And a pastor, right in the wake of that, in his office, and he looked at me inspirationally and said, Brent, and my my mother and sisters, or my mother and siblings were in there too, 
seeking to inspire, and I guess rally me, said, you have a choice. You can either be a victim or an agent. And of course, I decided, well, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be an agent. And then what unfurled after that is years of extreme emotional unhealthiness and poor theology. You know what Ashita told me to do? Grieve. You know what he should have said? I'm sorry. What do we do with loss? We're called to grieve it. And then from grief, we do learn lessons, and we do adapt, and we do move on by God's grace. Jesus knew that. We are called to do that in our own lives and others. So Christ does not shy away from sadness. He's aware of it. He enters into it. And then lastly and most briefly, he delivers out of it. Christ moves this emotion of anger and sadness into the other most powerful emotion in Scripture. Thanksgiving. Many would say, I think correctly, that the two most powerful emotions in Scripture and therefore in life are sadness and thanksgiving. So Christ shows sadness and then He gives thanks to the Lord for what He's about to do, which is to deliver from sadness. This is where we see the end of our text, verses 42 through 44. I knew that you always hear me. Well, let's go in verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the other people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He's aware of sadness. He engages us in our sadness. And then in this scenario, specifically, And subjectively, he delivers out of sadness. He literally raises a man who has been dead for four days to life. What does this mean to us? It means a couple things. One, Christ is in the business of resurrection. Christ is in the business of bringing life out of death. Not only ultimately in a physical way, but even in a more micro way, spiritually speaking. We can make accurate application here even to thinking about the death that indwelling sin brings in our own life. Christ is about resurrecting that. Christ is about bringing life out of the death that we cultivate in our own lives with regard to our sin and brokenness. But what else does Christ raising Lazarus from the dead mean? This is our destiny too. Our destiny is death. Real physical death. And in Christ, our destiny is real physical resurrection. Christ is aware. Christ enters. Christ delivers. Kate Bowser concludes her article that we read in the beginning. Reflecting upon something that is good to say. You know, she talked about what is bad to say. You, know, you don't want to be the minimizer or the solver 
or the teacher. She says, here's a suggestion of what would be good. The impulse to offer encouragement is perfect. There is tremendous power in touch, in gifts, and in affirmations when everything you knew about yourself might not be true anymore. I am a professor, but will I ever teach again? I am a mom, but for how long? A friend knits me socks, and another one drops off cookies, and still another writes a funny email or takes me to a concert. These seemingly small efforts are anchors that hold me to the present, that keep me from floating away on thoughts of an unknown future. They say to me, like my sister Maria did one very bad day recently, yes, the world is changed, dear heart, but do not be afraid. You are loved. You are loved. You will not disappear. I am here. That's what Christ is saying to us. Which should encourage us to traffic in brokenness and sadness. Ours and others. Because Christ says we are loved. We are loved. That we will not disappear. Because he is here. Let's pray.